Well, it is such an honor and a privilege to welcome you to Stone Seal Community Church this morning. Uh, man, we got a full sanctuary today. Thank you for coming and giving us some of your time on this wonderful Sunday morning. Um, we're in a series called Living in the Lion's Den, the people of God in exile. And so we'll be getting to that momentarily. Uh, if you're new to the series, you can, of course, go to YouTube and you can kind of backfill some of the messages that we've done leading up to Daniel chapter 8, which is what we're in here today. Um, feel free to do that and uh, that'll get, kind of get you up to speed. There's a couple special things I want to mention to you before we get rolling here this morning. Um, we've got a very special week and weekend coming up, and um, that is the week of VBS, Zoomerang Va uh, Vacation Bible School, July 31st through August 3rd, and you've already heard an announcement about that. A couple things that relate to this. Uh, this week, uh, starting tomorrow, the Indiana State Legislators will be meeting in Indianapolis to discuss the impact of Roe v. Wade being overturned. That's something that we probably should pray about today and so we'll do that in just a moment um, so I would just invite you to do that um, and then also our VBS week of July 31st through August 3rd the theme for that week is reforming uh, or returning to the value of life returning to the value and the beauty of life and so um, that'll be the weekly theme and then on Sunday morning of August 7th we're bringing in a couple uh, Mike and Lisa Davis, who walked through an abortion together as a couple in 1985, and they share an incredible and a powerful testimony of how God has redeemed um, that era of time in their life. And so Mike and Lisa Davis, at 8.45 a.m., Sunday morning, August 7th, breakfast will be served, round tables in the sanctuary. Um, so come early and uh, have breakfast with us, and then listen to a couple of people give a very powerful testimony. And then after that, um, the testimony at 8.45 to 9.40, um, we'll have our service at 10. And Abigail Lorenzen, who is a representative for Indiana Right, uh, right to Life, um, she will be um, here speaking to us and sharing some powerful insights um, on this theme. And then also Mark and Amber Archer will be with us on this same day. And they've made a very powerful documentary on a, on a doctor um, who did some things in Fort Wayne a few years ago, and uh, they've a very powerful presentation uh, in that documentary. In fact, I, I'm sensing maybe they'll have some of those available so that you can take it in if you'd like to. So a very, very powerful, life-giving, life-driven, biblical worldview-orientated week coming up in a few weeks. And so would you just join me in prayer over all of these speakers and these special um, things that are happening not only here locally but in our state and just join with me once again so father thank you so much this morning um, for your love and grace thank you for our church family and thank you for a place that we can come together and see who you are in your greatness and your power and your love and and so we do pray for our indiana state legislature legislature leaders and late and the legislature itself as a body as they um, discuss and debate and propose ideas and laws in light of um, your, your um, value of life. And so I just pray you give them wisdom and understanding and guidance. And I just pray for everybody here. I, I don't know how this might have touched lives personally, but I just trust and pray today that they will know the love and grace of the Lord Jesus and that you would effect a healing in their lives. And maybe this will be part of that healing weekend for them. Uh, but nevertheless, we just pray that 
uh, all of us would just be um, uh, blessed with insights and opportunity to grow and develop in how we see life and, and uh, our role in that um, priority that you have. And so you guide us here and you, you direct our church and our state and our, and our people. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for praying with me on that. Uh, there's a key quotation that I want to share with you this morning. Um, and it's a quotation, really, we can just come back to over and over again, especially today. But it's, uh, it's one that ties into a specific phrase that we're going to see in, in Daniel chapter 8 today. And that quotation goes like this. In a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. In a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. In Daniel chapter 8, you're going to see one of the false messiahs uh, of, the, of, of the period of Old Testament history. There's a couple of uh, great leaders in Daniel chapter 8. Alexander the Great's one of them. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is the second of those, and we'll be kind of focusing on him today. But there's a phrase in Daniel chapter 8 that says that, that this leader threw truth to the ground. He threw truth to the ground. And when you do that, um, you're, you're basically saying that to me, the truth is worthless. Have you ever seen somebody just take something, just throw it down and just discard it and they want nothing more to do with it? Have you ever seen somebody do that? Um, Maybe your little kids have done that from time to time. Maybe they tried something they didn't like and just threw it to the ground. This is worthless to me. Well, that's what he does with truth. And when you do that with truth, you're implementing a post-truth culture. Are we living in a post-truth culture? We are. And we see it all around us, and we see the evidence of it. And so when we think about it uh, in terms of a post-truth culture, it's important for us to realize that what George Orwell said years ago, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. I never thought that just simply stating things like uh, there are two genders, for example, male and female. That's a revolutionary act to say that and propose that today. I never thought it would come to that, but it has. Um, something you'll never hear me say he got pregnant. You're never going to hear me say that, okay? But now we're living in a time where, in fact, uh, those kinds of phrases and statements and sentences are being floated and proposed. Uh, uh, God created life, another revolutionary truth. Uh, uh, man is in rebellion against God, okay? Revolutionary truth. Uh, Jesus offers us a way to salvation and eternal life. He says, I'm the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. It's not just the journey. I am the journey. I am the destination of the journey. You find me, you find life. That's a revolutionary statement in a plur religiously pluralistic age where everybody's truth claims are equal, which is a logical impossibility, but nevertheless, that's what reality has become. You and I are living in a post-truth culture. That simply means that feelings and preferences have been elevated over objective biblical truth. And when that happens, you have chaos, you have destruction, 
you have anxiety at, at, at uh, incredible levels. People don't know what to make, how to make sense of life. And we go mad when we don't have truth. We go insane when we don't have truth, something to build our life on. So when we, when we talk about this, I want you to bear in mind this morning that in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And I want you and I to be revolutionaries. I want us to speak truth, live the truth, be the truth, and most importantly, I want us to know the truth because the truth is not just a proposition. It is not just a formulation or formula of some kind. The truth is a personality, and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. He is truth. He is total truth. And when we invite him into our life, we begin a great journey. You know, um, when we look at the whole book of Daniel, there's times when we've got to back up and take a, a kind of a big panoramic view of this thing. And one of the things that we've got to keep in mind is that Daniel lived virtually his entire life during a period of God's judgment on his people. And so he was deported out of his homeland as a young teenager. He lived all of his life in Babylon. And he dies in Babylon so far as we know. And they think he was buried in Susa, which is about 150, 200 miles east. And so he he lived his life in a period of God's judgment, right? He never got to live at home where he always wanted to go, where he always wanted to be. He didn't know that life because he, was, he and his people were plucked up and deported out of their land. And so, and so really when we look at this and we, see, and, and we understand that, that God is holding his people accountable for the rebellion, for their disobedience, for their obstinacy, for their high-handedness in, in rebelling against God, It really begs the question, if God holds Israel accountable, will he also hold America accountable? Fair question. If God holds his people accountable, will God judge America too someday? Fair question. Slide 45 for me. David and Jason Benham, in their book, Living Among Lions, how to thrive like Daniel in today's Babylon. They tell about a conversation they had on that very topic with Pastor Dr. Erwin Lutzer, pastor of Moody Church in Chicago at the time. And they ask him, Dr. Lutzer, do you think God is going to judge America? And the way Dr. Lutzer answers the question set the tone for their entire book, which is a powerful book they throw fire and, and, and breathe smoke in this book. They just do an incredible job. But he, the way he answers the question they had, these guys proposed to him, really transformed the way they thought about things. He said, guys, the question is not, will God judge America? The question is, what does faithfulness look like in the midst of God's judgment? What does it look like? That's the better question. Daniel, like I said, lived an entire lifetime in Babylon. And the reason he was there was God's judgment on the nation of Israel. And Daniel decided that he would be faithful to God, even if his nation refused to be faithful. And because of that decision, Daniel transformed his world. 
He was, a, he was one who spoke the truth as a revolutionary act in an age when people didn't want the truth that Daniel spoke. And he was faithful, and he transformed his world. And, and people, the people of God have always lived their lives in ongoing conflicts of world history. And, and, and how is it, how, what is God, what is he asking of us? What does he want from us? What, what, how can we honor him in this, even though there may be periods of judgment in which we find ourselves? I think what you'll find more often than not, and we especially see in the life of Daniel, speak the truth. Bear witness to the truth. Define reality as God defines it. That's your calling. That's our calling. Regardless of what happens in America. Regardless of what happens in world history. You know, um, the Oxford Dictionary chooses a word of the year that captures the cultural mood and preoccupations of the culture and, and of people. And the hyphenated word that they chose for 2016 was post-truth. Interesting, isn't it? Post-truth. It was coined in 1992. It's gained traction in recent years. And what that means is that the objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than, than, than appeals to emotion and personal belief. So people subordinate the truth to feelings and preferences. And when feelings matter more than facts, it creates confusion. That's why we see the world we see today. Confusion has now morphed into a virtue, for example. And those who are confused sexually are labeled heroes. Those who see morality, like the Ten Commandments, as a fuzzy category are considered progressive in a post-truth culture. And those who are confused about religious claims, saying that all paths are equally valid roads to God, are considered tolerant in today's culture. But those who are clear on these matters are not treated so charitably. If someone is certain or clear on sexual boundaries, for example, that person is a bigot. If a person is clear on the existence of objective moral values and boundaries, that person is regressive. And if someone clearly understands that different religious paths can't possibly all lead to God, that person is considered intolerant. And that's why, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. In other words, the confusion has become a virtue and clarity has become sin. And we simply can't live in a culture that denies objective truth, that subordinates the truth to feelings and preferences. We can't live without truth. Right is right even if no one is doing it. Wrong is wrong even if everyone is doing it. And St. Athanasius, the church father, says, if the world is against the truth, then I am against the world. If the world is against the truth, then I am against the world. Friends, the world today is against the truth. Stand strong. Stand brave. Don't believe the lies. You'll never find the meaning of life inside yourself. And this is what the culture is floating Find the meaning of life inside of yourself, and you'll never find it there. It doesn't matter how much therapy you have trying to find it. You'll never find the meaning of life within yourself. You have to find it outside of yourself. You have to come to one who is the truth, who tells us what the truth is, who's told us the truth, who is the truth. He invites us into this encounter and personal relationship with the truth. You'll never find it any other way. You know, um, as we look at this, 
and we look at uh, this period of history that we're in, it's kind of interesting uh, because Daniel, like I said, you know, he himself is living in a period of God's judgment, but he, he gives to us insights into a selected period of time that very few biblical writers actually write about. And it's the time of 400 years, they call it the silent years. If you'll go to slide number, uh, slide number four for me. So what happens is, in these silent years, it's a little bit hard to read, um, but it's called the intertestamental period. And what we're going to talk about, we have to talk about when we do a, a series on Daniel, is that Daniel writes about 550 B.C., and then he actually uh, will address some of the, he, he prophesies two and three hundred years into the future, he prophesies about leaders that are coming, and they're coming during this period of intertestamental history between the testaments, okay, between the Old and New Testaments, 400 silent years. In other words, after Malachi the prophet, in about 400 B.C., we don't hear from another authoritative prophet for 400 years. And there's lots of things that happen. So after Daniel writes and he dies, he prophesies, hey, guys, there's going to be about a 400-year period of time. He understands this. And I, and I want to give you some insights on, on some things that, that hist historically that are going to happen during this period of 400 silent years. And so that's what he does in Daniel chapter 8. He tells you about Alexander the Great. He's going to tell you about uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, which we're going to talk about him today. And these are guys that pop up in this era of time. And Daniel's like, you know, um, here's some leaders. Here's some things you want to watch for. And, and when you see this, you see the, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and I'll mention a little bit more about that. And these are world leaders, and Daniel actually talks about one of the eighth king in the Seleucid Empire. We'll talk about that. Okay, then you have a period of Jewish independence, and finally the Roman rule in 63 B.C., and then finally in 4 B.C., after all the assassinations, after all of the betrayals, after all the upheaval and up and down in world history and kings that were ruling and were assassinated and other kings that came along on the scene, other empires trying to jockey for position, trying to acquire land, trying to expand their empires. In all of that, for 400 years, we don't hear from a prophet. And then in about 4 to 6 B.C., we hear a baby cry. Wah. Wah. And he's in Bethlehem. And God breaks the silence with a baby. Well, what's God up to? 400 years, no authoritative word. He's got a people, Daniel writing 550 B.C. He's got a people that's looking at 400 really tough years of history. We're just going home. Is it going to fix all the problems? There's still going to be other world empires on the scene. People that's going to try to jockey for position. Yeah, they're going to get to go home from Babylon, but it's going to be tough because, you know, Haggai and Zechariah is going to get them to rebuild the temple, and, and Nehemiah is going to help them rebuild the wall, and Ezra is going to lead a spiritual revival. But there's no prophets, no authoritative word for years 
God says basically through Daniel, Daniel, I want you to tell them their history. And when they discover your work, your book, they can go back and look at the history that I told them what was going to happen before it ever happened. I want you to give them this, this history of this 400-year period of time. I want you to show them that he, when they don't think I'm working, when everything is quiet, when life seems so bland and blah, and the truth is losing, it seems, and universal deceit, no one's willing to tell the truth. In those moments, I want you to give them this prophecy. I want you to show them that I am at work and it's going to go just like I predicted it would go. And by that, they would know that I'm at work in the world. You know, in Daniel chapter 8, we mentioned this last week. If we just kind of look at a Reader's Digest version of Daniel 8, um, we see that Daniel saw a ram with two horns, and the ram was attacked and violently defeated by a shaggy goat with one large horn. Slide number seven, if you would, for me. The horn was broken off and replaced by four other horns, and a small horn grew up out of that one of the four horns. Okay, I'll make sense of this in just a second for you. 400 years after Daniel predicted it, in 550 B.C., this small horn leader who wanted to be significant, who was a kind of false messiah, he persecuted Israel, he polluted the temple, he blasphemed God, he murdered thousands of Jewish people, he wanted to stamp out Judaism. And what is more, all of this is a preview, a dress rehearsal for a final antichrist leader that would come at the end of the age. So the, pa the passage here is prophetic. It speaks of one who is coming uh, in, in 400 years or so, this guy arrives. It also speaks of one that's going to come at the end of the age, and it's going to be near the time of, time of the second coming of Christ. And so this passage is very powerful, it's very moving, and it, and it drove Daniel to his face. And you're going to see that. And so we see this here in Daniel chapter 8. So what, what, what do we make of this? Well, if we go to the glossary verses... Uh, slide number 35, if you would, for me. D Daniel interprets. He, he, he shares with us what these uh, ram, what the ram and the goat, what it all stands for. And so we just we'll look ahead and we'll read it in advance. The glossary verses kind of gives definition to what we're going to see in the early verses. So the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between its eyes is the first king. Alexander the Great, history tells us this, and, and it was uh, 200 years in front of Daniel. It's now uh, 2,500 years on the other side of history. We're looking back. History bears this out. And so the four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from, this, from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. And so Daniel gives to us what the, the, the Medo-Persian kingdom is the ram with two horns. The Unigote is, the, is the, uh, the Grecian kingdom with Alexander the Great. And now we pick it up in verse 8, if you would. Uh, verse 8. Daniel chapter 8, verse 8. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, this is last week, the large horn was broken off, and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. And so we see this. Uh, it, 
in history, when we look at, at what happened after Alexander the Great lost his life at 33 years of age, four other generals rose up, okay? And one of them came another, out of one of them came a, a horn which st started small but grew, verse 9, it grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. And so you have, um, give me the goat with four horns, if you would, for me. I don't know what side number that is. You got, after Alexander the Great, you had Seleucus, you had Ptolemy, you have Lysimachus, and you have Cassander, okay? And then what happens is these four empires spring up. The Seleucid Empire, the one on the left there, takes off. And, and in eight kings in, there's another king that rises up and, he's a, and he, and he uh, persecutes the people of Israel, okay? And this is, this is what we see. One of them came another, out of one of them, the Seleucid horn, came out another horn which started small but grew in power to the south, to the east, toward the beautiful land. That's the land of Israel. Verse 10, the horn grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry host down to the earth and trampled on them. Of course, the host of heaven, you know, that's a, kind of a cryptic phrase, but we see in Genesis 12 how God's people are referenced as the host of heaven, the stars of heaven. And so this is a, a wave of persecution, Daniel says, that's going to break out sometime in your future. A wave of persecution is going to break out. And, and, and this horn set itself up, verse 11, up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. So he, he stops the daily sacrifices in the temple and, and, and this person that we're talking about, okay? Antiochus Epiphanes, he does precisely that. He stops, he steps in. He stops the daily sacrifices. He halts it. And, and furthermore, when we look and we dig and we understand some other things that he does to the Jewish people during this period of this 400 silent years, he sacrifices a pig, and that's non-kosher, of course, in a Jewish frame of reference and worldview. He sacrifices a pig on the altar in the temple. He, he replaces uh, the furniture of the temple with a statue of Zeus. He forbade circumcision. He profaned the Jewish Sabbath. He worshiped the God of pleasure and wine. He invited the harlots in the city of Jerusalem into, a Jew, into the city in Jewish feast days. And the book of 2 Maccabees, which is not in our Bible, it's actually an apocryphal book. It doesn't have the same authority as our Old Testament. But in the book of 2 Maccabees, it says, For the temple was filled with debauchery and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with prostitutes and had intercourse with women within the sacred precincts and besides brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit this is Antiochus Epiphanes it's a leader a false messiah that's risen up that's persecuting the people of God B verse 12 because of rebellion the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it that is the horn. It prospered. This leader, this Antiochus Epiphanes, he prospers in everything he does. And one of the hardest things you'll read in the Bible is how God allows sin to run rampant for a while. And he does. There's pleasure in sin, but it's only for a season. And, and he prospers. He prospers. The truth, here it is, the truth was thrown to the ground. It was considered worthless. Antiochus despised the truth. He literally attempted to outlaw scriptural faith in service to God. He, he burned copies of the Torah, the Hebrew Bible. 
he, he, uh, he attempted to annihilate their literature and their culture completely. No circumcision, no sacrifices, no temple to worship in, a profane Sabbath. It was a reign of terror, some linking to a demonic uh, impact and influence in his life. Antiochus, Antiochus got rebuffed by Rome at one point. Took his, he took his uh, defeat out on the Jewish people, 22,000 soldiers into the city of Jerusalem. Over a three-day period of time, 40,000 Jewish people were killed, including women and children. It was a mass killing of all ages. Daniel sees this, and he's trying to convey to the people of Israel in the silent years what's going to happen. Verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. And he said to me, verse 14, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. 2,300 evenings and mornings. And so there's two sacrifices per day. That's 1,150 days are involved. A little over three years, this little horn, this false Messiah, this Gentile leader is going to step in. And he's going to do this to Israel and the city of Jerusalem. He rises to power. He's a force of intrigue. He, he's a representative. He's a foreshadowing of an antichrist who will come also at the end of the age. He stops the sacrificial system. He desecrates the temple. He seems to be a complete success. And all this is a foreshadowing of the leader that's going to come at the end of the age. Verse 15, while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. Tell this man the meaning. We, he needs help to interpret what he's seeing. And it's intriguing to me that Gabriel shows up two times in the Bible. He shows up here in Daniel 8 where he talks about the horn of destruction that's going to come, not only in in the silent years of Israel's history, but at the end of the age. And he also, Gabriel gets to talk about another horn, the horn of salvation in Luke chapter 1, verse 68. So Gabriel gets to talk twice. And he talks about the horn of destruction, Daniel 8. He talks about the horn of salvation in Luke 1. When, when Gabriel shows up, some, something major is going down. Verse 17, as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. And while he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. It's interesting that phrase, the time of the end, occurs three times in Daniel and all references a time of the second coming of Christ. So this vision now goes from not just a period in the silent history years of Israel's history in that 400-year period, but it also telescopes out to a time at the end of the age when another Antiochus Epiphanes is going to rise up and he's going to do what this particular false messiah does in about 160 B.C. or so. 
verse 20, we'll hasten through this. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. The large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from, the, from his nation but will not have the same power. And in the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, verse 24. But not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. He will consider himself superior when they feel secure. He will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princesses, even God himself. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. And just like the Antichrist will be destroyed by the second coming. Antiochus Epiphanes, this leader that Daniel is telling them about that's going to come in the next three or four hundred years of their history, is going to be destroyed and held accountable. In fact, history bears out 164 B.C. He falls out of his chariot, but that's not what takes, does him in. Antiochus Epiphanes, according to sources, had internal ailments brought on by worms and ulcers. And he got a little crazy at the latter end of his life. And he dies. And according to 1 Maccabees, another apocryphal book, according to 1 Maccabees, with these words of confession, he says, and he dies. He says, I remember the evils I did in Jerusalem. I seized all of her vessels of silver and gold. And I went to destroy the inhabitants of Judah without good reason. I am perishing of deep grief in a strange land. And what we have is the dark reality of evil that can take up residence in a willing person's life. And this can escalate. And it did, and it will. Verse 26, we're almost there. Stay with me. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true. But seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. Seal it up. There's going to come a time in this period of 400 silent years, my people are going to have to be encouraged. They're going to have to be given insight. The word of God is going to be hard to find. The truth will not be spoken. People will be searching for it, longing for it. God, we need to hear from you. 100 years, 200 years. God, where are you? God, where are you? 300 years. Where are you, God? Send us a prophet. We need a Malachi, a Zechariah, a Zephaniah. Send us a prophet. Send us a word of truth. Daniel understands this. He says, I'm, you're not going to hear from me for a while. But I'm going to tell you how history is going to go before it happens so that you'll know I'm sovereign. Even in the silent years. Maybe you're in a silent time. God, where are you? I need to know you're there. I need to know you're working in my life. Well, Daniel the prophet. The man of God, the man committed to truth, gives them a word. Verse 27, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. If God gave you a vision about the future of your family, if God gave you a vision about the future of America like this, that in three, 200 years this leader is going to rise up and conquer this nation, in another 200 years this leader is going to rise up, your people are going to be persecuted, their way of life is going to be taken from them, churches are going to be banned, Bibles are going to be burned. If you got a prophecy like this in your life, I have a feeling you're going to pull a Daniel right here. 
you're going to be exhausted for several days and worn out just like he was. And then we read those powerful redeeming words, which really answers the question, how are we supposed to live in a time of God's judgment? Then I got up. And I went about the king's business. That's how you live. In a time of God's judgment. I was appalled by the vision, yes. I was frustrated that my nation went down the path they went down. I was frustrated that they, they cast the truth down. They just discarded it, considered it worthless. They, they, they were untied from the moorings of truth. I was appalled by it. I was appalled by what I had to live, the, 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 the consequences and the repercussions that I had to suffer personally because of my nation's leaders going down the path that they're going, ushering all of us into a period of, of, of captivity and of judgment and of accountability. But I got up and I went about the king's business. It was beyond my understanding that you're calling. That's my calling. In a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Bear witness to it. Live it. Converse about it. Raise your family in it. Immerse yourself in it. We can't just defend the truth all the time. We've got to feed on it. You've got to feed on it to know what to defend. Feed on it. Live in it. Regardless, the question is not, will God judge America? No, no. The question is, what does faithfulness look like in an era and time of judgment? If we go to slide number 26, we see it again. Truth was thrown to the ground. It was considered worthless and to be discarded. And there's nothing more concerning and disconcerting to me to know and to see that truth has been discarded. It's been considered worthless. And what is truth? Well, the struggle of our time is at its most basic level is a struggle to define reality. Someone said truth is what corresponds to reality. Truth is when an idea, a belief, or a statement matches or corresponds with the way the world actually is. That's truth. And we're losing that in light of feelings and preferences. You know what I'm seeing is that people all over America are lowering their voices and looking over their shoulders when expressing a fundamental truth or biblical viewpoint. That's soft totalitarianism. What is that? That means there's another viewpoint that's, that's creeping over society. A progressive, anti-biblical militancy that's creeping over society. A worldwide dictatorship of secular humanistic ideologies. Elevating feelings and preferences over objective reality and truth. And when that happens, we lose our moorings. It gets chaotic. We get confused. And in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes 
a revolutionary act. How are we to be faithful during a time of God's judgment? Slide 46, if you would, for me. Dr. Lutzer said to the Benham brothers, guys, the question is not, will God judge America? The question is, what does faithfulness look like in the midst of God's judgment? What does faithfulness look like in the midst of God's judgment? See, the Benham brothers know from personal experience what I'm talking about this morning. They've lived it. The Benham brothers you know, they had their HGTV reality show canceled several years ago because of their unapologetic stance on Jesus and a biblical worldview. It was a media frenzy over their stand for Christ. Some of you remember this. And during an interview with Fox and Friends, they were asked, so you guys were fired for having an opinion. And Jason responded, we weren't fired for having an opinion. We were fired for voicing an opinion. In fact, communicating basic Orthodox Christian beliefs are starting to be labeled hate speech. Just because I say, for example, that same-sex marriage is anti-biblical because it makes it legal for a child to be deprived of a parent that the child has a natural right to. When I say things like that, that flies in the face of a post-truth culture and age. That'll, that'll draw legal action in a lot of places in the world. But it's hate speech. Biblical worldview is considered, redefined as hate speech. In a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. You can't tuck your head when it comes to talking about and proposing and presenting and defending the truth. You can't just quietly whisper it. No, no, no. Just speak the truth. And that's a, a revolutionary act in an age of universal deceit. That's our calling in a time where it, we are to be faithful. Well, these guys understand that. And the Benham boys, the media tried everything. They stereotyped these guys. You're ignorant. You're uneducated. You're inhibited. You're intolerant. You're bigoted. You guys are hypocritical. All because they talked about Jesus. They marginalized these guys, excluding them from positions of influence in other re reality TV forums. They threatened these guys, losing their contracts for talking about or writing about Jesus in their personal time. They intimidated these guys, withdrew friendships, and ever since then, they have made it, these guys, by God's grace, have made it, have done really well in the real estate world because of their principled work ethic, and so they're just fine. And now they travel the country calling Christians to stand boldly for Christ. And they'll tell you straight up, what God calls depraved, our culture now calls diversity. What God calls blessed, our culture calls bigoted. But their thought is that even if God does and is, is judging America, these boys want to be Daniels who are faithful and transformative even in the judgment. And that's what I'm proposing to all of us here today. You know, their dad was a pastor of a small rural church in Texas. 
And both of these guys went to Liberty University and played baseball for four years. They both got drafted in the MLB after they graduated from Liberty University. And when Jason was with the Baltimore Orioles in the minor leagues, he said he became known as the Christian dude from Texas. He didn't create that label for himself, but when you use clean language in the dugout, on, or any sports team for that matter, people kind of pick up on it. He tried to be a biblical worldview guy, he says. He saw his teammates as people of God, and, they care, and he cared for them. One guy he tells about was a tall, lanky pitcher. He had a cannon for an arm, and he was like the life of the clubhouse. He'd have music videos pumping in the dugout, and somebody he'd always have somebody laughing, and he'd have a new picture of a naked person up on his locker. I mean, it's just how he rolled. And he also liked to smell good. And so in between batting practice and game time, he would go take a shower, and he would spray cologne all over his body. And while the team was on the field stretching, they could smell him the minute he stepped out of the clubhouse. It just wafted. The aroma just wafted over the field. And he always popped out with a big grin. Jason said, I really liked that guy. And he really liked Jason. And he kind of got to know a little bit about the a biblical worldview and the life, a Christian life just by hanging out with Jason, his teammate. Well, the night came when Jason got released from the team. And he was sitting at his locker, his head's down in between his knees. He's fighting back the tears. And he feels a tap on his shoulder. And it's the tall, lanky pitcher friend with a cannon for an arm standing there by him. And he stands up and he hugs Jason as tight as he could hug him. And then he handed him a gift for the road, his trademark bottle of cologne. So he could, I guess, at least smell good, even if he got cut from the Orioles, right? Mr. Smellgood was trying to reconcile Jason's release with how one of the best guys on the team, how he could get released and get cut, and some of these other uh, boneheads still on the team. He said, Jason, you're the real deal, man. I don't want you to ever forget me. When you smell my cologne, think of me and pray for me. Jason says, that night my dream of playing in the big leads died right there at my locker. But God used this situation to teach me that he isn't concerned with fame by the world's standards. He is concerned with faithfulness by his standards. My role in professional baseball was not to make it out under the big lights. My role was to know God and be his man in the clubhouse. That was God's calling for me. And that was God's calling for Daniel, to be God's man in the clubhouse. And that's God's calling for you, to be God's man in the clubhouse. Not necessarily in the bright shining lights, but to be God's man in the clubhouses of life representing his truth, speaking his biblical worldview into all these life situations. Jason says, the culture of professional baseball was as dark as any I've ever experienced. Being faithful to God is not about being in the right environment, but knowing God in the midst of any environment. The question is not, is God going to judge America? That's his deal. The question is, are you going to be faithful to represent and speak truth 
regardless of what kind of environment that's created for you and I to live in. Fifteen years later, Jason stumbled onto a box with some of his old baseball stuff inside, and he found that little bottle of cologne. And it reminded him of a season in his life where he spent three years in the minor leagues planting seeds and bearing witness to the truth of Jesus. Jesus was preparing him for life in the dugouts of life. David, his brother on the screen, had a similar experience on his, on his minor league team. He said, I noticed a trend. He became the teammate, the teammate that all the guys turned to when their lives fell apart. And he, he said often, I mean, he said, I can't tell you the number of times at 2 in the morning, I get a drunk teammate knocking on my door, and they bare their soul about something they did that they shouldn't have done and the guilt and the shame they're carrying because of it and how that they know their life is taking a wrong turn even though they're in minor league baseball living the dream. He says, I still get thank you letters and messages from former teammates years later just because of a listening ear. Speaking truth into the lives of those minor league baseball players far from home who were trying to figure out who they were and what their role was in the world and what they wanted to build their life on. How are we to be faithful in a time of God's judgment? Bear witness to the truth and do that faithfully while waiting for all things to be revealed. You know how Antiochus Epiphanes shut down the morning and evening sacrificial system for three years. Remember we just read that in the text? Well, for believers, and according to Hebrews 10, Jesus' substitutionary death and resurrection put an end to the need for morning and evening sacrifices once and for all. Even though it was an abomination to do it back in 165 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphanes decided to do it. 400 years later, or 150 years later, Jesus comes on the scene, we hear a baby cry. He lives his life, saying things nobody else said, doing things nobody else could do, walking on water, healing people, exercising, casting demons out of people, saying things nobody else had ever heard, doing things with an authority nobody else had ever witnessed. And three years into that thing, they decided they would take the most perfect human being that ever lived and put three nails through his body, his hands and his feet. And when, he, when it was all done after that six hours, one Friday, or I think it was Thursday, another sermon, okay? When he drops his head, he's, right before he drops it, he says, it is finished. You look in the Greek, be dismissed, he says to his spirit dismissed you're just you can go now in total control i've accomplished salvation's plan spirit you may leave spirit leaves he drops that head and the hebrew writer writing several years after that said that once and for all that did something cosmically and spiritually for the world his blood shed once has the power to atone for all It's personally applied when received by faith. 
And the final word in the world is not declared by ram kingdoms. It's not declared by goat kingdoms. It's not declared by um, Seleucid kingdoms. People like Antiochus Epiphanes who have this thing to destroy God's people in the way of life and to wipe out a God-oriented biblical worldview and identity who cast truth to the ground. These are not the, those who have the final word. The final word goes to the one who is the Lamb of God. The one through whom God's kingdom comes for all eternity. He is the one who finally triumphs. He has secured our future. He will sustain his people in a prolonged season of exile and suffering. He will establish his kingdom. He will reward the righteous. He will execute swift justice on the wicked. He will subdue the nations. He will judge unbelievers. He will radiate with glory. He will demand worship in a time of universal deceit. Telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Church, tell it. For if you don't tell it, there's no one left left to say it. He will reign supreme. And because of him, you and I can be ready. You know, I've noticed something. False messiahs, they talk about just come over to our side, right? We'll wine and dine you. We'll win you. We'll show you a good time. You ever have somebody call you up and say, come over? We'll have a good time. That's what false messiahs do a lot of times. The true messiahs doesn't say, come over. The true, Messiah's in, the true Messiah doesn't say, I'm going to wine and dine you. I'm going to show you a good time. I'm going to maybe get you to do stuff you wouldn't ordinarily do. Come on over. No, the true Messiah says, come home. Don't just come over. I'm not just about trying to show you a good time and trying to show you how awesome I am and how awesome you can be. No, no, no. No, no, you're already awesome. You're already a, a, a person made in the image of God. I've already died for you. You're awesome. You're already in a bonus situation because of what I have done for the world. Don't just come over. Come home. Come home. You're part of the family. You're a part of his redemption plan. You're a part of his purposes for life. He stamps you with a new identity because of what he's done. And when you open up your life and you say yes, forget that come over stuff. Come home. You're part of a family now. Would you like to come home? Well, you can. I'm going to tell you something. Uh, it's an insider talk in the preacher world. Did you know that Daniel 8 is a preaching nightmare? Did you know that? Preaching nightmare. Pastors hate this chapter because they hate to preach on this chapter. I'll say it that way. Because of how thorny and sticky it can be. I've tried to simplify it as, e- as best as I can here this morning. But what you can't miss is that when truth is thrown to the ground and it's considered worthless, life gets confusing and you need the truth. You need it. Now, believe it. Speak it. Be faithful to it. Because you've got one who says, don't just come over. Come home. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you this morning for your love and grace. And you know what? You're great, and you're awesome, and you're powerful, and I just worship you today. Thank you for being with me in a very thorny place. I needed your help and strength this morning. But then, Lord, I want to thank you for just the truth. People like David and Jason Benham, these Benham boys who lived the truth. Man, I love these guys. 
They just lived the truth out there, working their life, in the clubhouses of life, speaking truth, holding up Jesus, not kowtowing to politically correct ideologies, to soft totalitarianistic viewpoints of life where we have to tuck our head and hide and we got to whisper the name of Jesus and we've got to be really careful how we say what we say. No, 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 no. No, we can be, we can be winsome, but we can be bold. We can be courageous. We can be faithful. Even if we do go into a time of judgment, you've called us to be faithful. And that's where we want to stand. That's the direction we want to go. And you give us the strength to do that and raise up a bunch of people who are, in a good sense, rebels in an age of universal deceit. Rebels because they speak your truth. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Will you stand with me? Thank you so much for staying with me this morning. You have a great week. Uh, Next week, Daniel chapter 9, if you want to read ahead. Blessings, you're dismissed.